Peter Schwitzer? Oh, yeah, it's the guy I listened to when I made my first billion. He's one clever son of a... Five, four... We're online. The hottest internet station. It's time for The Switzer Show with the guy who makes getting richer easier than running up a credit card bill, Peter Switzer. Yes, and hello to The Switzer Show. I'm Peter Switzer. And we are the people here who just have one simple goal for you to try and make you money wiser, money smarter, and ultimately richer. On today's program, we're going to talk to a person who's been renowned for being a Telstra hater and has now become a Telstra lover. Roger Montgomery from Montgomery Investment Management. As I say, I've been interviewing Roger on my TV show for probably nine years, and he's always hated Telstra. Now with the share price falling, he's now become a Telstra believer. We'll find out why. And we'll also ask him about some other smarter investments he likes for his particular funds. We'll also talk to Martin Herps from Gumtree or E-Trade, apparently the second-hand economy in Australia is worth something like $34 billion. We'll see whether that's a growing number or something on the wane. I suspect it is a growing number. My wife often is seen going to op shops, and I don't know why, but she does come out with some fantastic things at unbelievable prices. So I guess there is some value in uh, shopping and buying second-hand. And finally, we have our favourite accountant, David Giles from MoneyWise slash Switzer. And David's going to answer questions around what is tax deductible? I've got one really interesting question. You see, the government actually has told retirees that when they've got a, a super fund and they've got more than $1.6 billion in their super fund, they have to bring it back. They have to make it smaller so the maximum they can have in their fund is $1.6 billion. Over time, they can grow their fund, but from their starting point, when they're on pension, it has to be $1.6 billion. What if you've got a property in your super fund, only a property, and you're just collecting rents from it, but it's worth $2 billion? How do you shave $400,000 off a property? Do you sell the garage? Do you rent out, do you sell out one of the rooms? You can't do it. So how does an accountant help someone sort out that particular conundrum? That's the show for today. Without any further ado, let's go to Roger Montgomery from Montgomery Investment Manager. Roger Montgomery, Montgomery Investment Management. Thanks for joining us on The Switzer Show. Always a pleasure, Peter. Now, Roger, I did say in my introduction that for nearly a decade, you and I have talked about your ongoing hate session for Telstra. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's a strong and, word, but I know it's a strong yeah, word. But you will. We explain. thought there were better. There were certainly better investment opportunities. <laughs> no, I got to say, you and I spoke about this so often. Yeah, objectively, it seemed like a hate session, but you had good reason for it. You've now turned around and you think it's a, a buy, or have been thinking yes. it's a buy. So why don't you explain to my listeners why you didn't like Telstra you know, way back, probably nine years ago, particularly just post-GFC? Sure. Uh, there, there are a couple of, couple of parts to the, to the, um, the answer. The first part was uh, quality or prospect. Um, and since 2005, when Sol Trujillo was in charge of the company, it was paying the majority of its earnings out as a dividend. Uh, in fact, it was paying up to and over in some years 100% uh, of its earnings. Uh, and, and that the, the 
corollary of that, of course, is that uh, there's no uh, earnings left over to reinvest. The consequence of that, with the benefit of hindsight, was, of course, that um, Optus managed to uh, almost catch up in terms of the quality of its network and uh, and uh, it's been spending a great deal of money and, and that's why uh, that that has been while Telstra has has really you know not invested in itself, mm. um, so that's one of the, the competitive dynamics uh, that puts Telstra's prospects uh, behind where it was previously because it wasn't investing in itself. So that that's the first part. The second part uh, comes back to value. When you've got a company paying the majority of its earnings out as a dividend, um, provided its profits are stable, it, it really is a bond. Um, it's 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 a it's no different to a you know a security with a coupon and that coupon steadily pays out to you and yes it's fully franked and yes it was very attractive to people who are uh, in retirement not paying any tax at all and so they as a consequence of that attractive dividend and and stable dividend um rushed Telstra's shares and pushed Telstra's shares up to prices that uh, weren't justified on on the basis of uh, an income stream that wasn't really growing um, uh, and so we had over the last few years, as, as ev- everyone would know, there was a there was a rush for income because term deposits were interest rates were coming off all around the world, including mm-hmm. in Australia. Term deposit rates were dropping, and people wanted a, a better uh, a better return, a better yield, uh, and uh, they all went for the banks and Telstra. Right. So that was the old story. And, Correct. And, and, and in particular, you said you just didn't see this company going anywhere and you thought eventually they're going to find it hard to sustain the dividend. And that was the story last year, Roger, wasn't it? And that's yes, why the share price fell. And over the, and as the share price fell, that – and I use the word in, with inverted commas, Roger, because I know you're not a hateful kind of guy. But as, that, as, that, as the share price fell, the hate started to diminish and love came out of – <laughs> yeah, no, Love no, no, sorry. Um, well, well, it certainly is the case that it certainly is the case that um, you shouldn't be wedded to uh, to any particular idea, and it's it's easier to say than to do. But you can go from disliking something um, with a great deal of uh, enthusiasm to, uh, to to liking it with mm. a great deal of enthusiasm. That what's changed is uh, number one, the share price. The share price obviously has gone from. Six dollars. Well, it must have been about six dollars fifty-nine or six dollars sixty uh, back in February two thousand and fifteen. More recently, it's been as low as you know the two dollars seventy uh, mark. So um, that's that's a big difference in price, and, and really that causes you to sit up and take notice. Um, we think the reason for the the low share price is there's there's obviously been a lot going on at Telstra that. Um, that has been negative, uh, and uh, the market has really focused on it. So, um, of course, there's a number one is the relationship with NBN Co. There are ongoing payments for the use of its its network, but then there are one-off payments which Telstra receives for migrating its customers off the copper network and onto the NBN. Those it loses those customers and, and it receives compensation uh, for that. And, and that's something, by the way, just as an aside, Peter, that's something that people missed many years ago when the announcement was made, when that when the structuring deal was negotiated between NBN Co and Telstra. A lot of people looked at the money that Telstra was going to get uh, and bid the share price up as a, a in response, not realising that it was actually compensation for losing something. Yeah. Um, and that's, and again, another reason why we weren't that interested mm. at the time. 
So those those one-off payments are going to cease. Uh, and when they do cease, obviously, it leaves a hole in the revenue and earnings of the company. Uh, and the market's very much focused on on the consequences of the, those one-off payments ceasing. Um, concurrently, there's a, there's a new uh, mobile phone network provider that's emerged, and that's TPG. They're going to spend about $600 million over the next three years building a fourth mobile network. One does wonder... Um, you know the depth of that network because you know in comparison to the money that TPG is spending, uh, the likes of Vodafone, Vodafone have been spending about a billion dollars a year. Uh, Optus have spent one and a half billion dollars last year, and Telstra spent something in the order of three or four billion dollars. So um, you know, do know how much of a network you can actually get for 600 million, but presumably they're going to cherry pick the most profitable um, customers mm. in high density areas of major major suburban. You know, major cities in Australia, uh, and and that's that's a competitive threat that didn't exist before that that has emerged, and, and investors are concerned about that. Telstra's response is a, a fairly classic response. Um, they they're doing exactly what what Qantas did when uh, Virgin was uh, Virgin decided to start competing more aggressively with them. Um, what they did was they lowered prices, they reinvested in themselves, and they innovated, uh, and that's precisely what Telstra's going to do. But the effect of lowering prices, of course, is that your average revenue per user drops, your margin drops, and um, and and that means for a time you're you're going backwards. Um, the market doesn't like that either. So, so you know, there's there's three, you know, there's there's three factors that the market is has focused on, and, and correctly uh, given a negative rating uh, to Telstra because of. Um, but now we think all of that's being factored into the share price, and it's also very well known. So there's nothing really I've told you that uh, the market doesn't already know mm. uh, and therefore it's likely that there's no one else left to be surprised by it and push the shares down further. So if that's factored into the price, we've got to start asking ourselves, well, is there anything worse that could happen that isn't factored in or is there anything better that could happen that isn't factored in? And when we look further down the down the road, we, we think there are some positive factors. So tell us what the fa- positive factors are, because the CEO, Andy Penn, is under a bit of pressure, isn't he, Roger? He does have to come up, I think, with a, a, a market-boosting, confidence-boosting play this year. And you think already he's done something that should you know, at least give a bit of solidity to his position as the, the boss of um, Telstra. Well, to that point, the, 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 probably the the single um, biggest concern I would have if I was buying uh, lots of Telstra shares today, and remember we we intend to have a larger position in Telstra than what we've got, so if the share price drops, well, we might see that as a indeed a positive. Um, the biggest concern that I would have is that the market starts getting excited uh, about the prospects for Telstra prematurely. So uh, to your point about Andy Penn, you know, yes, he does have to come up with the goods, but the, the worst scenario would be, and, and out of his control really, would be that the market starts to get excited about what he's going to do, expects results uh, much more quickly than can actually be delivered, and then is disappointed again. And then, of course, the market's disappointed with Andy Penn, um, and then there's pressure for him to go, which, which you know, you really do, to, to execute the sort of strategy that they have in mind, you really do need to have stability um, having said that, he's just removed a whole bunch of executives and, and is going to replace them. Um, and we think that that, that shows a, you know, a, an element of ownership in the strategy, um, that he wants to see it actually occur. He wants to see it work. He's removed, uh, you know, I looked at 
one of the people that were removed and and they were trying to run a run part of Telstra's strategy part time by living overseas. I'm not <laughs> sure how that that would have worked. Um, uh, but nevertheless, it, uh, it had to be changed. So, so it seems Andy's taking some ownership in the strategy. There's, there's a number of things that, that investors should be thinking about. The market's probably not pricing that. Well, it's definitely not pricing these things in at the moment. But one of them is um, uh, the ownership structure of the NBN. Uh, and at the moment, neither side of government, well, both sides of government have declared that they don't want to own the NBN company at the end of the next term. What is, what is the consequence of that? Well, the consequence is that it needs to be sold. Um, somebody else is going to own it, not the government. Um, but of course, who wants to own it when wholesale pricing uh, for access to the NBN is still up in the air and, and, and really no one's really certain about what it's going to look like. Um, if, if the NBN, NBN Co. will need to uh, raise, it needs to raise prices to actually have any positive equity value one, one, on one analysis, it has no negative, uh, sorry, no positive equity value at all. Um, uh, and so, in order to achieve some value, it's got to raise prices. Um, and if it does raise prices, though, it incentivises the the major uh, the major mobile providers to bypass the NBN Co. and invest more heavily in 5G. And that's the that, that's the first thing. The second point is that Telstra actually has the first and last right of refusal um, to cherry pick the assets from NBN Co. NBN Co has three major assets. One of them is the satellite um, business. The other one's the undersea cable, uh, and the third part's the the um, HFC, uh, the cable that everyone knows as the NBN. Mm. Uh, that's the cable that goes to someone's house. Co- correct. Okay. Well, outside, not to their home, yeah. not not to their front door, but. Mm. But along the street outside, yeah, yeah. Um, and so uh, and so, uh, Telstra having the first ra- first and last right of refusal um, to those assets, they may indeed it may you know it's it's complete speculation at this stage, but they may indeed end up with an asset that um, is quite valuable, and they may buy it at a reasonable price. Who knows? Mm-hmm. Depends how committed both sides of government are to um, to selling it and not having it at the end of the next term. So that's that's I guess part one and two. Part three is um, uh, is 5G itself. Um, it really is a step change in terms of the uh, the I guess functionality that it offers uh, and uh, uh, people who or companies that want to develop products and services that require um, low latency and uh, and high speeds. Uh, and so you know this is what's what we know is the Internet of Things, um, connecting devices like washing machines and dryers and fridges and all those sorts of things to the Internet. Mm. With many more devices connected to the Internet, um, there are opportunities for telcos to bundle all of those things up and offer new plans. Um, it's also the case uh, that Telstra uh, earns the uh, the very highest margins that are available uh, in the Australian market, and that's a consequence of its scale. Uh, so what it's doing right now by cutting uh, its prices in order to make uh, TPG's life a lot more difficult when it launches its mobile products, by cutting its prices and maintaining its market share uh, and its scale, that allows it down the track to um, to benefit more than anybody else um, when when everyone switches to 5G and, and starts connecting all sorts of other devices. And, and Roger, you've made the point to me in the past that when telcos get into these 
very competitive battles. Usually the big one wins. Yeah, well, yeah, so another way of of explaining that, that's right, another way of explaining that is that um, uh, all around the world, it's it's the the biggest telco commands um, the highest margin. So it doesn't matter whether we're talking about America or Europe or even Australia. Um, It doesn't mean that those margins don't come down or go up for everyone, but what it means is that the the company with the largest number of customers and the, the, the greatest scale... Um, tends to command the highest margins, and you know, all things being equal, Telstra really should command pretty much most of the um, margin in Australia. Okay, Rog. Well, today's price for Telstra is around two dollars eighty-six. What's yep. your what's your target price for Telstra? Look, at, at the moment, it's it's around the three dollar mark. Yeah. Um, uh, that can change, obviously, at yeah. a moment's notice. If 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 the company makes an announcement and changes its strategic direction, or it uh, it upgrades or downgrades its uh, its guidance, and that's going to that's going to change the valuation. But um, around that three dollar level, a little bit more than three dollars is probably fair. Okay. Now, before we go, mate, you you don't look at the big picture so much, though you have to deal with the big picture, whatever happens. But well, yeah, there's a consequence to to companies and and industries. But yeah, we're we're not we're less concerned about inflation and unemployment. Both. Yeah, and I, and I guess the, the I guess the question a lot of people worry about is that um, this bull market has been going on for quite some time, and the the the, the threat to it would pro- looks more likely to be a recession in the USA, which then could hurt Wall Street and the whole world follows, if we rule out the, the potential threat of what might go on in China. Do, do you look at the American situation and say, well, at the moment I'm really reasonably comfortable with what I'm seeing? Well, the, the, the global team here at Montgomery is less, uh, less sanguine, um, and, and that's because uh, Trump really only has three or four months before the midterms uh, to really create some damage uh, or do some good, mm. uh, and and we think uh, we think given the risk that um, that some of his powers are removed as a consequence of the midterm elections, um, uh, we think he will he will move heaven and earth to uh, to have an effect. Whether that effect is good or bad, uh, we don't know yet. Mm. Um, certainly, you can see um, the uh, you know the the. The ratcheting up of tensions between America and China through uh, through tariffs, um, uh, we think that's you know that's just the beginning of things over the next three months. So we think the potential for greater volatility um, uh, is is growing uh, with every passing day as we get closer to those midterm elections in the United States. Yeah, but would you use a a sell a sell off as a buying opportunity? Uh, that depends on the. You can't just broadly say, "Look, if the market sells off, would you buy stuff?" Um, it depends on the individual companies and and how far they fall. We recently added to Facebook, for example, because of its own um, short-term issues, uh, and uh, and overnight we saw, um, or yesterday we saw some over the weekend rather we saw some announcements from a, a Chinese company called Fifty One Job. And uh, and that gave us the opportunity to add uh, to positions there. So you don't need a broad market sell-off to add to positions. We could find that individual companies um, go through their own you know, inevitable setbacks, and people treat that as permanent, but it's really temporary. And so that gives us the opportunity to buy those things, even without a broad sell-off in the market. Okay, Rod. Thanks for joining us on the program. It's a pleasure, Peter. That's Roger Montgomery from Montgomery Investment Management. We're back after the break. And we'll be talking to David Giles and we'll be asking questions about what you can claim when it comes to taxes.
And now, a word from our sponsors. Have you got a home loan? Do you know what you're being charged? Check your rate, and if it's more than 3.89%, call us at Switzer Home Loans. Our rate for a variable home loan is 3.89%. That's right, 3.89% is all you'll pay. Interested? Call 1300 664 339 or Google Switzer Home Loans. Now, here's Switzy. Now, I have to say this, and I always throw it in. I've got to get that woman to do that ad again because we haven't told you that our advertised rate, 2.89%, which is a great rate. Uh, in fact, it's 3.89%. 2.89 would be much better than 3.89. 3.89 is our advertised rate, and that is also our comparison rate because we don't add on any little sneaky fees like a lot of other lenders do. So... Um, I'm going to ask get Maureen to do that ad one more time. We've been promising to do that for probably three or four weeks, but I do enjoy sort of teasing her by saying, hey, that woman with that sense of urgency talking about 3.89%, remember that's both our advertised rate and our comparison rate. Well, our next guest is Martin Herbst, who's a general manager of Gumtree Australia, and I've you know, gone after Martin after seeing a press release that told me Australia's second-hand economy is worth $34 billion. Martin, thanks for joining us. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Martin, is this thing a growing thing? Is this $34 billion? Was it a lot less some years ago? But with the arrival of businesses like Gumtree and how easy it is to to sell stuff that's lying around in your garage or in your your, your spare room, is it on a growth trend upwards? Well, we're finding in the, in the research that the, the the size of the secondhand economy uh, is massive and the potential size is, is huge. So we found with the research that you know, nine in, out of ten um, Aussies um, have unwanted items in their home, um, you know, on average about 25. And the worth of that... Um, Totals up to around four thousand two hundred dollars per household. So, in aggregate, the potential value of this secondhand economy is thirty-four billion dollars. Um, Gumtree's had this research uh, going since two thousand eleven. Um, we've been in, in the market as a brand since back in two thousand seven. Two thousand seven. So, in a lot of ways, we've pioneered um, uh, a lot of the growth in the secondhand economy, making it very easy, free, and local for people to buy and sell. Um, online, particularly in, a, in their local area. And so our growth has been phenomenal over the last um, 11 years since we launched. We've got over about 3 million listings on the platform, hundreds of categories, and 7 million um, Australians visiting Gumtree each month. So just looking at our growth um, you know, as a proxy for that, you know, we think that the, the secondhand economy is, is booming, but we also believe that it can be even bigger. Yeah, well, well, Martin, you've got me sort of excited in many ways because many years ago I, I wrote the Australian version of an American book called The Complete Idiot's Guide to Getting Rich by a guy called Larry Schwasker in America, and, and I did the Aussie version. And I, I remember Larry being so you know, down to earth and saying how people could actually build their wealth. And one of the, the, the pieces of advice he gave was, you can have a garage sale. 
and, and garage sales can actually net you a lot of money because stuff just lies around the house and people don't think about selling it. And so I'm one, and I'm, I also like to link it to the fact that out there eventually Australians are going to face rising interest rates or young people might need to impress a bank that they've got enough money for to get a home loan so they build up their deposit. And probably they've got stuff lying around the house that they could sell which would actually improve the look of their house or their garage and at the same time build up their total cash assets. And so my question to you is, are are there a lot more people buying stuff on Gumtree than they are selling stuff on Gumtree? Well, absolutely. I mean, um, the way I like to say it, um, I mean, I think that's great. It is a guide to getting rich. Um, You just have to be um, common sense. Um, And I like to, to think about this way. We all have clutter around our house. We've got piles of books that we've read. We've got clothes that we don't wear. In some cases, we've got birthday gifts or Christmas gifts that we haven't opened or haven't really used. If you've got kids, you know, they've grown out of their toys or their, their mm. bikes or what have you. And if you look around the house, you know, rather than looking at them as items that are just sitting there, think about them as bundles of cash. Yeah. Um, and if you thought about them as bundles of cash, you certainly wouldn't leave them lying around. And um, you, ought, you definitely wouldn't be just throwing them straight into the bin. But 50%, half of us, half of Australians do admit that's, that's what they're doing with a lot of their um, unused stuff is mm-hmm. that they're throwing into the bin. And that's crazy. There's, there's, there's really no excuse for that, particularly when you've got a powerful local selling platform like Gumtree, or you can even donate to charity. So, so Martin, what you guys obviously, because you want to grow your business, obviously you've done the psychological work to find out why people don't take the opportunity to convert. For example, I, I would reckon there's a lot of people listening to this program now who might have an old surfboard or a set of golf clubs sitting around the garage that easily could be converted at least to twenty, thirty, forty dollars or whatever, uh, and they just don't do it. So, what's the psychological holdback? that stops people from actually turning the, their stuff into dollars? Yeah, I think the, the number one reason cited by most people is just that they're time poor. Um, and I think that we're seeing with, with technology and how easy we're making it, particularly with a smartphone, with our app, we can take a couple photos within a few seconds, uh, write a, um, a nice description and get it posted online and get responses um, within minutes, like literally within minutes, mm. the actual amount of time um, it takes is, is, is minimal. And in, in, in many cases, right, you're actually saving time. So, you know, if it, that clutter, that old surfboard or the old furniture, the, you know, uh, uh, appliances, rather than actually trying to pick them up and corral them and get them to the curbside, for instance, for um, the local council, you actually save time by getting people to pick it up for you. Mm-hmm. So I think that's the, the biggest reason why people hold back, um, it's a uh, perception of, of um, not having enough time. I think once they give it a go, they will um, realize that the, the time required is, is very minimal. And I'd also say my advice would be take advantage of these, you know, key life moments, whether you're moving a house or you're downsizing, um, or you're spring cleaning. And those are the perfect times to, to get a lot of this stuff done. And you're, you're clearly should be making the time for the cash. Okay. So for those people who've never ever sold anything on Gumtree, tell us what are the steps? Yeah. The steps are, um, so, Take a, take a look around your house. Um, look at the things that, you know, visual inventory. 
um, management, basically. What are the things that you're no longer using? I'll give you a rough guide, for example. You know, myself, if I look at my wardrobe, if I haven't, you know, worn it in the last six months, and that's, that's essentially two seasons worth, then I'm not going to wear it again. So you can think about that for almost any other items. If you haven't used it in the last six months or a year, then that's worth, you know, um, having to think, all right, um, post this online. Then I'd say, okay, the, the other sort of, uh, questions that we get, well, hey, uncertainty around can it sell? What would be the price? Well, do your research and easily pop on a Gumtree, uh, throw a couple keywords into the search bar um, for the item you're looking for. You know, smartphones is another one which we have a very huge market for, and, we, and, and consumers cycle through those you know, every two or three years. So very easy to type in essentially the, the item, the smartphone, the electronics, the you know, the book, what have you. And you can find those prices um, that are actually on the, the on Gumtree at the moment to use you to, to use as a guide. Um, if it's a car, right, we actually have a valuation tool to get the actual valuation for that car and we'll suggest the price range for you to actually post that car. So um, do your research. Uh, take the photos, so, so high-quality photos with a good, solid description. Um, post it out there, and, and that's basically it. Has anyone ever sold a house on Gumtree? Uh, yeah, all the time. Um, <laughs> we have. I don't. I don't know off the top that off the top of my head, but we we definitely have a few thousand uh, listings in our real estate category, all the way from flat shares to rentals to to homes for sale. We've yeah. sold really expensive cars and boats. Um, all things you can find <laughs> on, on Gumtree. Fantastic, Martin. Thanks for joining us on the program. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. That's Martin Herbst, GM of Gumtree Australia. Coming back after the break, we'll be talking all things tax with David Giles. And Giles, he'll tell us whether we can or can't claim a tax deduction. And now, a word from our sponsors. Have you got a home loan? Do you know what you're being charged? Check your rate, and if it's more than 3.89%, call us at Switzer Home Loans. Our rate for a variable home loan is 3.89%. That's right, 3.89% is all you'll pay. Interested? Call 1300 664 339 or Google Switzer Home Loans. Too many people spend money they earned to buy things they don't want to impress people that they don't like. So stick with Switzer and get rich. Yeah, and also, <laughs> I always forget about his teeth. And also remember that the 3.89% advertised rate for the Switzer home loan is exactly the same as the comparison rate. Now, coming up, we'll be talking to David Giles, our fantastic accountant, who always makes the answering of tough tax questions so easy to understand. Well, Gilesy, welcome to the Switzer Show. Thanks, Pete. Great to be back. Yeah, now, mate, I, ha I, look, I had this sort of wicked dream. I, I, I dreamt about self-managed super funds, as a guy like me might do, unlike most people in the world. And I thought, hang on, what if someone's got a $2 million property inside the self-managed super fund because they don't trust the stock market and they're getting a really nice you know, rental income and they're living really well out of their self-managed super fund and their $2 million property, 
But the new rule says that if you're in that retirement zone and you're not paying any tax, the maximum your fund has to be when you, um, well, you, it can grow over 1.6 million, but at one point in time, you have to bring it down to $1.6 million. How do you do it when you've got a $2 million property? All righty. Well, luckily, the ATO has put some thought into this to a degree, <laughs> and they have put some provisions where people had already previously more than $1.6 million in super. The ATO had a provision there where you could split up the value of that asset, hmm. either being $1.6 million tax-free in pension phase, like what it used to be, and then the remaining money would be sitting in a bit like an accumulation account, so being taxed at 15% on the earnings. Yep. And so how the ATO would wants us as an accountant to work that out is each year we need to get what's called an actuarial certificate. So right. that's where we have a, an actuary work out what the balance of each part of the fund is and then they give us a percentage on that to apply. So say if it made $100,000 worth of income in a year, that's say 75% of that income relates to the pension account and the other 25% relates to the accumulation account. So you don't have to sell that asset mm. in order to meet the being compliance. But we do need to do a little bit more accounting and compliance work to make sure that we can still meet the requirements so, that the ATO wants on so that 1.6 cap. So what this means then, Giles, is that let's just imagine that it's a good property and you're getting, say, $2,000 a, a week in rent. You know, you're getting a very good rent, but just for simplicity. So you'd have mm. to say, and let's make it even, even easier mathematics, it's $1,000 a week rent you're getting from this property. Mm. You'd have to hive off what twenty five percent of that? No, is it twenty five percent? No, it's it's. Uh, we're saying it's four hundred thousand yeah, dollars more than the one point six cap, isn't it? Mm. So four hundred four hundred thousand on one point six million would be twenty five percent, correct? Yep. Okay. Yep, so that's th- so therefore, of that thousand dollars, two hundred and fifty dollars will have to be taxed at fifteen percent. That's correct. Which would probably surprise a few people and would hurt their lifestyle if that's all they're bringing in each week. Yeah, compared to what they were, say, a year or so ago, um, it can make that bit of a difference to somebody in that situation. Mm. And it's something we have seen a little bit, with, particularly with people with properties that have increased a lot in value over the last few years, especially with residential property, yeah. where it may have crept up a lot more than what they previously expected it to be. At. Yeah. Because some people who, who might have been really astute might have thought, I don't like the stock market. I'm going, to, I'm going to buy this $2 million property five years ago, which now could be worth $4 million, and paying 15% on the balance over 1.6 could be a pretty big slug and a very big hit to yeah. their lifestyle. Yeah, particularly if it forms a major part of the investment income of the fund. Mm. Uh, yes, it, it's, it's something that's um, you know, in taking away the 15% out of your return. Um, on that component that's over 1.6. Obviously, also with people who, if you say, a two-member fund and that balance is a bit more shared, you might be still okay. But that's not to say that we've had a few of our clients who have been done very well with property over the last, they've had a self-managed super fund for 25 years and they've been very astute with their investments and they've still been caught up with that even in your traditional husband and wife type of fund. And, and, And the reason we don't hear about it is because Newspapers find it very hard to to play the, the the tragic violin for people with over two million dollars in super. Yeah, 
It's unfair, isn't uh, that's, that, that's, it? It's unfair. It, it, well, I suppose it's, it's discrimination. Of it, well, it actually is. It's, it's something that wasn't there before. So it yeah. is for those type of people in that situation. They are paying more tax mm. now than what they were, say, two years ago. Very interesting. Absolutely. And it also tells you something about the challenges of having a non-liquid asset in your super fund. Mm. Yeah, right. and, and that's despite the issues that you'll have later on in life with making sure that you're income on that asset meets your minimum pension requirements. That's yeah. also another big issue. To be well, that's, that's another point, yeah, because you, you, for a long time you've got to pull out at least 4%, haven't you, as well? Mm, yeah, and then as you get older, that will increase up to all the way up to 9 12% yeah. as you get closer. So it may at one stage become more than what the investment earnings of the fund actually are, yeah. Yeah. And at which stage then you're forced to sell. Very hard. All right, mate, let's go to the next question I've got here. I subscribe to an investment newsletter like the Switzer Report, which I think everyone should do. Um, and I do it from a super fund. Is the the outlay tax deductible? Well, for the, the ATO has a general rule on this. So they would look at it and say, if you're producing income for the fund, that can be directly attributable to the Switzer Report. Oh, say, and they would. Yes, that that, would. That's not even and an that would be question. deductible. Right. So whilst, so if you've got a self-managed super fund, so whilst it wouldn't probably apply, say, if you had like a, an industry fund or something like that, yeah. you wouldn't be able to create that connection. But if you had a self-managed super fund or personal investments, and you can directly demonstrate that the knowledge that you're gaining from that report mm. is directly affecting the investments that you're currently holding either personally or through the super fund, yep. that would be then taxed up. Okay, so the next question, Giles, which I think you, you have answered, if I'm just a, a, a normal investor trying to build my wealth and I figure that a, a, a thing like the Switzer Report will help me um, build the wealth and effectively pay tax on that wealth accumulation, mm. then if you've got that relationship, it's more, more than likely going to be a tax deductible outlay. Yeah, that's correct. And the main thing there is you've got to have investment income first before it becomes tax deductible. So um, once you're earning some income from, so you might already own a few shares and dividend, you know, get some dividend income that way. Then, if you apply for the report, uh, you know, sign up to the report, absolutely deductible in that way. But if you currently don't have any investment and sign up for the report, that wouldn't necessarily be a tax deduction. It's only right against your normal working income, for argument's sake. So it's only deductible to the extent that you earn investment income. Okay, so let's go to the the question around someone, and there'll be a lot of people here thinking themselves, and I must admit, as a young man, uh, and I, when I was in, in teaching at the University of New South Wales, I had a part-time business on the side. Um, and a lot of people aren't aware of what they can and can't claim. Now, if, for example, I am an employee, but I have this desire to start a weekend business of some kind, or maybe an online business, which I'll do at nights, the preparation and research to set that business up for example, visiting a great accountant like you, working out whether I have to have um, a you know um, a ba uh, pay a uh, tax via a bass and all that sort of stuff. That kind of pre-business research is that tax deductible? Uh, it is to a certain extent. So. The ATO has this great term called black hole expenses, mm. and that's very much what they're considered. So they're an expense where, there's in, where you're incurring a cost before there is a likelihood of income. Yep. And the ATO splits these up into two categories. Professional advice, so accountants, advisors, things like that, mm. and then other fees and charges, so things like you know 
travelling expenses, trips, those type of general research provisions. Professional fees and advisors, they're tax deductible straight away, but only tax deductible against that investment income, I mean, sorry, business income when it incurs. So that's something to consider there. Black hole, other black hole expenses, so things that have got no prospect of definite sources of uh, income in the future yet, they'll be deductible over a five-year period. So say you need to travel into state to go have some meetings, those expenses over five years. Mm. Um, and so they'll, they'll build up over time. So if you had, you know, say thirty or $40,000 worth of expenses and none of that related to investment advice, that will be deductible over five years' time. So mm. it will then offset that income. So it, it's something that's worth, you still need to keep your receipts. It's just that it, it's going to take some time to cut that claim back. Okay, and that's, that's really good to know. So cause there was a time when the tax office didn't allow you to claim those pre-business setting up expenses um, because you weren't earning income. So the tax office has become a little bit more charitable and considerate. Yeah, progressively over the last 10 years, they've improved their black hole expenses um, summary. So the whole concept came about 10 years ago and then about two years ago in the budget, they smartened up a bit more with small businesses allowing that immediate deduction for professional advice. Mm. Um, so that was a big one. So it's a real big sort of a kickstarter to any sort of business that's starting up that they've got some immediate deductions that they can claim on as soon as they start earning income. Okay. If I do all this research and the research tells me the business ain't going to work, you can't claim that as a tax deduction against the income you might be getting from your, your job. That, that's unfortunately the case. So the ATO wants to see that there is a prospect of income mm-hmm. and that that's where it's going to come through um, because the ATO has some special rules regarding deductibility of business losses against your working income. So you've got to meet, there's about four different tests you need to be able to pass, well, one of those four tests you need to be able to pass uh, in order to be able to deduct those losses against your working income. And in most cases, if you've started, well, started a business, well, never quite got going with that business and just incurred a lot of costs, you're probably not going to be able to pass any of those tests and thus you're stuck with uh, those losses being uh, gone forever, unfortunately. Okay. All right. Uh, Yep. Let's talk about tax losses. Um, Tax losses, I set up a a business. I'm a sole trader. Um, First year, my losses are, say, $10,000. Next year, I make a profit of $10,000. Can the loss from the year before be deducted off the the profit I make the year before, so I'd have to pay any tax? That's correct. So losses will carry forward uh, to the following income year and to be offset against future income. So a lot of businesses might be at a loss for two or three years in a row Mm. after all their expenses are go through, especially accounting for depreciation and to buy equipment and things like that. Um, And so it could be quite a number of years before you start making that profit back. So it's Important, that's why even though you might not be making a profit, keeping all your records to be able to make sure that you can claim those losses on the way through. Um, the ATO does also make some provisions um, for losses. So you might have a sole trader situation where they do a bit of weekend work they might, and then also they have a, a job during the week, say two or three days a week. So the ATO does have some provisions there where you can use those losses early uh, if you can manage to pass one of their business loss tests. Mm-hmm. And so that's either making more than $20,000 a year worth of income in your business. Um, that's one of the ones. If you've got more than $200,000 worth of business assets, um, that's another very common one that we find most people will pass. Um, or if you've made a profit in one of the last three years of your business and you just happen to make a loss in a particular year, 
and you've got wages income, you can use those business losses to offset your wages income then. So it can still be a bit of a useful if you've got a bit of mixed working in, in history where you've got a bit of in, in wages and business losses. Uh, so it's always important to keep those records. Now, Giles, this is an interesting one. What if the loss for the sole trader has actually been created because you've paid yourself a really good wage? Ah, so with a sole trader, so that's where it's a bit, it turns into a bit of a money merry-go-round. Yeah. So when it, with a sole trader, um, that loss with, with wages, the ATO has an add-back for wages that you pay yourself from your own business. Yep. So that will just cancel each other out. But mm. particularly in other types of business where you might be running a trust and you pay yourself a large wage, mm. that actually can be a bit of a bad situation. So I have clients in my, in where they might have trust and they're running that business or even a partnership and they're running that business and they pay themselves like $100,000 wage a year but it puts a big loss on one entity, but then they have income in their personal name. Mm. So that's where then you need to be monitoring your situation during the year where it may not always be appropriate to be paying yourself a wage mm. um, in order to balance out where your income and profit should lie between different entities. Well, well, but, one, uh, certainly sole traders, yep. Yeah, one last thing. If, if I'm a company and I'm, I'm paying myself what would be regarded as a, a fair wage for my activities, but I still, as a company make a, a $40,000 loss, is that a loss that could be used in the next year when I'm still paying myself the same wage but I make a profit? Absolutely. So that loss will carry forward to the following year. So one thing with losses, they'll always carry forward for as long as what the business is registered for. Hmm. Um, so as long as the business continues on, you might have a business that's coming to the end of its life and it's still got a couple of hundred thousand dollars losses carried forward from its last few years of trading activity that was winding down. Those losses will remain as long as what the, for as long as what the company will be uh, registered for. Yeah. So in some cases, I've got clients that will retain a company purely to ret- help hold on to the losses in cases of future business that may pop up there through relatives or you know, family or friends. And I, those I, losses actually have a value in a sense. Yeah, and, and I guess it's the, pe- the appeal of being a company as opposed to a sole trader. Correct, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so those losses can be useful. So that's where it's something that I like to make sure it's correctly recorded when we're preparing accounts because even if a company is winding down, those losses couldn't represent, you know, if you're paying 27.5% tax, if you're mm. sitting on $100,000 worth of losses, that's $27,000 worth of tax savings potentially. Yeah. And, and so it's, it's not something you always want to give away. And it's funny because I've come across instances, I'm sure you have as well, where there's a business that's made losses year after year, but those losses are so valuable, people buy the business to buy the losses. Correct, and that does happen. It's a because they have said it's, it's got a value there, yeah. so it's it's worthwhile looking into when you've got a business that's had some losses over a previous year to make sure that they're properly recorded. Mm. You can substantiate them all because you, you never know in the future they might be mm. there. Because with a company, it could last there for the next you know, I can say our next hundred years. Yeah. It could be there as a potential claim. As always, Giles, you've proved to my audience that you make tax. Well, I won't say it's sexy, but you certainly make it interesting. <laughs> thanks very much Pete see you mate David Giles from MoneyWise and Switzer Accounting a real good egg when it comes to tax that's the show for the day thanks for joining us that's right it's quitting time thanks again for joining us and we'll talk to you next week on the Switzer Show